It is the story of a shipwreck, a terrible and deadly one. The death toll even higher than the sinking of the Titanic. 20 years ago, on September the 26th, 2002, the Jula disaster claimed as many as 1,900 lives. The ferry was sailing between the Senegalese province of Casamance and Dakar, but in the middle of the night, 40 kilometres off the coast, hit by tropical rains and strong winds, the boat turned over. It took more than 16 hours for help to arrive on the sea. Only 64 passengers survived the night of hell. This boat was actually made for rivers and lakes, but not for the high seas. There were multiple causes of the disaster. The jeweler, managed by the Senegalese Navy, was in a bad condition. It was overloaded with four times more passengers than the maximum allowed. The vehicles in the hold were not secured, and the captain of the ferry, who died himself, also accused of making a navigation error. The families of the victims have long tried to obtain the truth about what happened. Some have filed a complaint against the Senegalese government for negligence. The case, though, closed in Senegal in 2003. Legal proceedings also began here in France, where several of the victims were from, but they did not succeed. So 20 years later, the families of the victims continue to demand justice and continue to fight so that the jeweller and those who perished are not forgotten. Sarah Sacco and Sam Bradpiece revisit the jeweller disaster for France 24. The jeweller disaster led to at least 1,863 deaths. More than half of those who perished came from Ziganshore, the capital of Senegal's Casamance region. The southern city was left emotionally scarred, but memorial sites are scarce. This cemetery contains some 40 tombs, mostly unmarked. Eli Diata will never know if one of them contains his brother's remains. I don't have any tomb that I can visit. I don't know. I find myself standing by this one in front of me and in front of others which are symbolic of the Jula shipwreck. The vast majority of those who lost family members in the disaster never found their remains. The day after the ship capsized, only 450 bodies were recovered. Others were swallowed into the deep. Marie-Joseph also pays regular visits to the unmarked tombs. She was never able to recover her daughter's corpse. Her pain continues. They said they had found my daughter's body, but I never saw her face. It would be easier to grieve if there were bodies. We would know where to find them in the cemetery. But without bodies, it's impossible. Grieving is impossible without a body. Successive governments have promised to salvage the jeweler up from the depths where it remains to this day. Twenty years on, patience is wearing thin. The boat is still in the water. They have the resources to get it out. We don't know why they don't want to. Ever since the boat went down, we have screamed for them to do this. We're still crying for them to do this. But the authorities never answer our calls. We're angry with them. Pulling the boat up could bring relief to us and the victims who are still at the bottom of the ocean and who are calling for us to get them out.
It would allow families to grieve properly and give a sense of liberation. Twenty-sixth of September 2002 is the date etched onto the minds of the victims' families. That day, the jeweler left the port of Ziganshaw over capacity and leaning to one side. Shortly before midnight, in the middle of a storm, it capsized off the Gambian coast. Many are struggling to move on. We met again with Marie-Joseph, this time at the Ziganshaw fish market. She raised her five children alone, thanks to her business here. This is my spot. When I'm working, I place my fish here and sell it. When her daughter Françoise went down with the ship 20 years ago, Marie-Joseph's hopes for the future drowned too. She was 21 and in her second year of studying at the University of Sheikh Anta Diop in Dakar when she went under in this accident. I had thought that she had been a gift from God to help me get through my struggles. At my age, I shouldn't be here. I knew my daughter. She was ready to do anything for me. Today, she wouldn't have left me working at this market. Look at me now. I will be here until the day I die. Marie-Joseph received compensation from the government a few years ago, as did other families that asked for it. She was given 10 million CFA francs, a little more than 15,000 euros. Today, she is not only sad, but deeply bitter. They gave 10 million. 10 million over the course of 20 years is what? What will happen to a mother or father who has not seen the body of their child? You'll become crazy. You'll go mad. You'll have trauma in your mind, in your brain. That's how it is. Belfort is a working-class neighbourhood of Ziganshaw. Elijata, now aged 54, has always lived here. He is an active member of the National Association of Families of Victims of the Jula. That's my daughter who's playing there. The disaster changed his life. The university professor has spent the past two decades memorialising the shipwreck. This is the family home. This house was constructed before I was born. It has lasted a long time. We live here. The shadow of his deceased older brother still hangs over the house. This was Michel's room. Michel stayed here after leaving Saint-Louis. After he left the national team, he came back, and this was his room. On the day of the disaster, Michel, a former footballer, boarded the ship with 26 students from his soccer school. 
The children left in single file. It was very beautiful. You could see them in single file, leaving the house and then passing by the other side to head towards the port with their equipment, sling bags and other things. The next day, we learned of the catastrophe. An official report released in 2002 found that the jeweler had not undergone proper maintenance and was poorly managed, jobs the Navy had been responsible for. Judicial investigations were dropped the following year, with judges allocating blame to the ship's drowned captain. Ellie's anger has not faded. The boat was not conceived to be able to go from Dakar to Zigan shore from a design standpoint. The draft didn't work, the ballast was not operational, and there was only one motor. Instead of taking 450 or 550 people, they took 2,000. That is what is disturbing. So how can they turn to us today and say that no one is responsible? It's unbelievable. There are guilty parties everywhere when it comes to the Jula. Institutions, government ministers and others. We are simply demanding that they be held accountable. Eli brought us to the village of Tionkesil, home to one of the survivors of the Jula disaster. The Jula has brought us all together into one big family. The survivors mean a lot to us. Hussein Ujiba was 34 at the time when the ship sank. He was one of the 64 people who survived. The school teacher tends to his orchard in his spare time. He's a friend from way back. We suffered at the same time. It's fair to say that the Jula brought us together. I know that it's very difficult for those who truly experienced the shipwreck but were then left to their own devices to know how to get over such a traumatic experience. At the time of the disaster, Usainu was a young businessman making regular trips to and from Dakar for work. Fifteen people from his village boarded the boat that day. None of his friends nor his brother survived. I was scared of facing questions because everyone would come and ask, what about my son? What about my son? You see that family there? They're my neighbors and lost their oldest son. So they would come and ask me, and what about him, what happened? To avoid all of that, I prefer to hide away. Carrying on as a survivor is not easy, it's difficult. Today, Usainu is able to describe the nightmare. 20 years ago, just minutes before midnight, he was in the ferry's large restaurant. It was crazy crowded. There were so many people drowning in the restaurant where the electricity had been cut. I looked at them, dying en masse, and crying out until their voices disappeared. That image is still with me. The Usenu from before and the Usenu after are two different people. Usainu managed to escape through a porthole and held out for seven long hours in the icy water. I saw a white thing floating towards me. I grabbed it and realized it was a life vest. 
When I tried to put it on, I realized that someone was already wearing it. This person had tried to put it on but had failed to do so properly and drowned. So I put it on and that's when I fell asleep. I slept as if I was in bed because I was exhausted. Usainu had trouble sleeping for years after. Today, though, he has a family and his life is almost back to normal, even if the memory of the disaster continues to haunt him. I get frightened by loud noises. It's because of the bottles, the tables and the cries that I heard in the ship's restaurant before being separated from those who remained there forever. I will never forgive. Justice must be done. People must be condemned and judged for their criminal acts. 1,900 children were orphaned by the disaster. The law states that the government had to look after them, but in reality, less than half were taken into care. Nearly 200 have received no compensation whatsoever. These children have now grown up. Abubakar was just six years old when he lost his mother in the wreck. When I'm not at university, I help my dad with his shop. He was the one who brought me up ever since my mother died. Amy and Ampate also lost a parent. Like Abubakar, they received assistance from the state over the years. But as adults, they feel left behind. Even if I was given the choice between all the money in the world or the possibility to see my mother again, even for just one day, I choose to see my mother because I grew up without motherly love. The government cannot fix that. But they could at least help us by giving us work so that we can help our parents. Have you seen my father? He's an old man now. He needs the help of his children. Abubakar and the others want government jobs building a memorial to the disaster. Construction is already underway along the river where the ferry departed all those years ago. For the families of the victims, it's about time. They've been calling for a memorial since the immediate aftermath of the disaster. Elidiata never gets tired of visiting the site. It's a great joy for the families of the victims to see this edifice being built. The memorial should be finished by the end of the year. It will contain a museum about the shipwreck. Katim Sanya works as a security guard at the site. He lost his wife and three children in the disaster. The names of my wife and children aren't written anywhere, not on the tombs nor the mass graves. I haven't seen their graves or their bodies. With this memorial, it's as if I'm constructing a tomb for my family. That is how I see it. When I'm here every day, I tell myself that I'm doing something for my family because I was never able to grieve. This memorial will allow future generations to come and learn about what happened in Senegal that evening of the 26th of September 2002. It's hoped that through remembrance, such a disaster can be avoided in the future.
This memorial serves to break the silence. It's a place of remembrance for the families and a portal between the realms of the dead and the living. Today, the three ships that run the service between Dakar and Ziganshaw respect international standards. Those who lost loved ones hope that the future memorial will contain what remains of the ship itself. For that to happen, the jeweler must be hauled up from the seabed. It's only then that they can grieve in peace. Sarah Sacco and Sam Bradpiece revisiting the jeweller disaster for France 24. Well, that's all from this week's edition. Of course, you can catch it and all the previous editions as well on our website. You'll find it at france24.com. More news coming up very shortly. Thanks for watching. <laughs>